If you're joining us by podcast, I want to welcome you. Uh, glad that you've joined us. I have to tell you that you missed a great time of worship led by our uh, city team, uh, excuse me, our city church worship team. But I also want to tell you, Dana, could you just hang here one second with me? If you would come up here and just hang here with me for a second, maybe grab a microphone or something. We have, I don't know if you guys know this, but we have a celebrity <laughs> worship leader. <clears throat> grab in Dana Jorgensen, who made his first appearance at the Grand Ole Opry this past week, and that is pretty cool. Yeah. Love it. Okay, so tell us about it. Tell us how it came about, and then tell us, I I saw some of the pictures that you uh, tweeted. Um, Yeah. Tell us what it was like. Um... Well, I guess um, last year on American Idol, uh, there was a, a girl from Nashville named Janelle Arthur. Um, it, the world is a very small place in Nashville and very somewhat connected. And so uh, seven years ago, uh, Julie was going to Middle Tennessee State University just south of Nashville and uh, met a friend. And anyways, through that friend, um, his cousin's girlfriend is Janelle Arthur, and she came fifth on American Idol last year. Um, and when she got back from American Idol, she, uh, I guess, found my name and asked if I wanted to write. And we started writing music um, probably six or seven months ago. And we've just been writing music. And she's actually recording a record uh, that's coming out very soon and a single that's coming out very soon. Um, and I, I just happened to be able to write with her and get a bunch of cuts on that record. And, um, and, and she's played the Opry many times with Vince Gill and sang with Vince Gill and done all that kind of stuff and, and had really cool stuff. And, and so she asked me this time if I wanted to come out and play with her two songs that she and I had written, uh, and then close it with amazing grace. Um, and, uh, and so we did, and actually Riley, who's playing guitar this morning, played guitar with us as well. And, and, and we sang three part harmony and, and did these songs together. So it was pretty neat. It's a, it's a really neat place and, and a whole lot of history. Country music's a whole different world and, and very proud of their history as they should be. Um, but it, it was a real honor. I mean, it was really neat. Is it more intimidating to play here or the Grand Ole Opry? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to say I was pretty nervous on, on Friday night. Um, I, uh, I haven't been that nervous in a long time to walk on stage. And, 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 and it's, you know, I mean, once the first note hits and we played with the Opry band the first song, um, and, and, but it's nerve wracking, you know, the first, the first, you know, four bars or four measures of the song was just me and the banjo player playing the exact same thing. So, you know, I'm going, Lord, please don't let me mess this up. I don't want to mess up playing with the opera band. Please don't let me mess it up. <laughs> and we didn't, it went off just fine. And, and it was, you know, once we got into the music, it was just, just like normal times. And you can't see past the first five rows of people anyways. Um, but, but it was a lot of fun. We, we had a great time. It was just Honestly, guys, it was such a God thing. It really was, and I don't use that lightly. I mean, it's been me in Nashville for 10 years working at it. Um, and, and she'll release her single. That It's a song that I wrote as well um, that's coming out in a couple of weeks, and I'll let you all know about it and stuff, and it, it's going to be good. I'm really excited about that. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. I, I'm thinking that I would like to start a campaign that is a campaign that all of us participate in to bring Janelle Arthur to City Church. Because um, since you know her, dude, so, you should be able to make well, this happen. I've had this discussion with her a few times, actually. Okay. Um, and 
she is, I don't know if it is as big in Evansville as it is in Nashville, but she, she goes to Church of Christ. Uh-huh. So that's like, you know, all kind of the book of the singing hymns, acapella, you know, no instruments and stuff on Sunday mornings. And so I, we I've talked to her, her sing a acapella. I, I would too, honestly, I, I would too. Uh, I, I'm trying, I'm actually working on it to try and do one morning where we'll bring her in and, and maybe play a song or two for y'all of, of hers. And then she'd just help me lead worship. And, uh, okay. It'd be a blast. Let me tell you what we're going to call. This is going to be a campaign. I need you all to participate in this with me. And what it's going to be called is oh, bring gosh. Janelle to Evansville. Okay, and we're going to hashtag that. We're going to put it out on Facebook. We're going to put it out on Twitter, and we're going to do trouble. everything that we can to make this happen. Okay, you're going to get me in trouble. All right, I'm fired. Dana, I'm excited for you, man. That is great, fantastic. Thank you all. I appreciate Congrats. that. You bet. If you're new to City Church, uh, we have been in a series called City Church at the Movies. We're in the last week of this series, and we've been looking at. This is a different series for us, by the way. It's not something that we normally do, but, but uh, we have felt like this would be very appropriate for us to do at this point. And what we're trying to do is look at points in which art intersects the gospel. We've looked at three movies so far, Dallas Buyers Club, 12 Years a Slave, Philomena, and today we're going to look at the movie Nebraska. And I want to tell you that I chose Nebraska uh, because I think you know, it's different than the other three movies. If you know, I don't know if you realize this, but all three of the other movies that we've looked at have been based on a true story. Nebraska is not based on a true story. It's a little more artsy than the other movies that we've seen, but I chose this because of that. I, I wanted us to, to see something like this, and I, and I think you might be surprised that this was a movie that many critics liked most. And thought that it should win, uh, thought it most deserving of winning best film, best actor, best supporting actor, and best supporting actress. And I think that might be a surprise to some of you. I want to stay true to form. We're going to watch a clip from the movie, and then we're going to talk about the points at which this movie, Nebraska, intersects the gospel. Let's watch the trailer for the movie, Nebraska. So you told the sheriff that you were walking to Nebraska. That's right. To get my million dollars. This is Woody Grant. We are now authorized to pay one million dollars to Woodrow T. Grant of Billings, Montana. This is his son. You didn't win anything. It's a complete scam. So you gotta stop this, okay? I'm running out of time. This is his wife. I never knew that I even wanted to be a millionaire. You should have thought about that years ago and worked for it. How much longer is he going to be around? What's the harm in letting him have his little fantasy for just a couple more days? This is his family. Woody, here's the talk of the town. Why didn't you tell us you was rich, Woody? David said not to. You got it on you. Yeah, we sure would like to see what a million dollars looks like. And this is the problem. Woody grabs a millionaire. (laughs) That is on Woody. If Woody hit it rich and I don't see any of it, that would be wrong. Are you threatening my family? Everybody's saying how Woody grants a millionaire. That's no big deal. No big deal? Jeez, million here, a million there. Well, the newspaper's gonna do a big write-up on you. Honestly, right? Woody didn't win anything. You're a liar. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. Come on. 
Have a beer with your old man. Be somebody. You might have noticed we had to do a little creative editing in a couple places uh, there just to make it, you know, ready for church. Um, how many of you have seen the new movie Nebraska? Raise your hands. Okay, good. A bunch of you guys have seen it. Um, if you haven't seen it, you might have been able to pick up from the trailer that Nebraska is the story of an old man named Woody Grant who's played by Bruce Dern, who does a very convincing job with this guy. And Woody's journey to claim a million dollars in winnings from a sweepstakes certificate that he received in the mail. The only trouble is his wife, who's played by a hilarious June Squibb, and his son, who's played by Will Forte of SNL fame. Anybody remember, like, the MacGruber little skits? Okay. Um, His wife and his son believe that this is nothing but a scam. When we first meet Woody, he's trying to walk from his home in Billings, Montana to Lincoln, Nebraska, where he believes that this pot of gold lies. Feeling compassion for his father's plight, Woody's youngest son, David, agrees to drive Woody to Lincoln because Woody can't drive. He's too old, and his mind is starting to go. The deal is, though, that they have to stop in Woody's hometown of Hawthorne, Nebraska, for an impromptu family reunion, and Woody sort of begrudgingly agrees to do that. When family and old friends in his hometown hear that Woody has won a million dollars, even though his wife and son tell tell them that it's not true, that he really didn't win anything, some in the small town are thrilled for him. Others want in. That is, until they learn that Woody's million dollars is a sweepstakes certificate, at which point Woody becomes the laughing stock of the whole town. What made this movie so fascinating, at least for me to watch, watch, is how highly nuanced this movie is. It balances both humor and poignancy beautifully throughout the movie. There are times that you laugh hysterically at this movie. In fact, uh, listening to the uh, and reading the comments from the director and the writer, this movie was really a comedy. But there are also times in this movie that you really just want to cry. The movie was masterfully directed by Alexander Payne. Uh, Alexander Payne's movies, if you don't recognize his name, uh, his movies tend to focus on middle-aged or older men who are struggling to reconcile the reality of their lives with their hopes and dreams when they were young. Some of you, some of you may remember, uh, back when we were still just promoting this series, I made a comment that I think probably some of you would consider uh, perhaps to be counterintuitive coming from a pastor. I said that, I said that I'm not a big fan of Christian movies. Some of you may remember me saying that. Here's why I said that. Besides what I think is often bad acting in Christian movies, in my experience, most Christian movies, not all, not all. So I'm, I'm leaving room here for whatever your favorite Christian movie is. Just insert that in here as not all, okay? But I think most Christian movies, in my experience, are too naive and simplistic in their plots and in their portrayal of their characters. In other words... 
it's sort of like in Christian movies, it seems like the good guys are all good and the bad guys are all bad. And about a minute into the movie, you know how this movie is going to end because the script has been telegraphing it from the very beginning of the movie. But the best literature and the best plays and the best movies and the best musicals, um, they're not simplistic at all in plot or in character development. In fact, in the best literature, in the best movies, the story centers around the complexities of the characters and the complexities of living in a fallen world. Even if the writer wouldn't use that phrase, fallen world, and even if the writer wouldn't agree with that expression and the theology behind it, the best literature, the best plays, the best music, the best movies center around the complexity of the characters and their lives in a fallen world. William Faulkner, one of the great American writers of the 20th century, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1949. And at the banquet where he received his award, he spoke and he, and he, he directed his comments at aspiring young writers. And he, and he said this, he said, the young man or woman writing today has forgotten the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself, which alone can make good writing. Because only that is worth writing about, worth the agony and the sweat. And Alexander Payne seems to get this. Many Christian movies really don't seem to get that. But Alexander Payne does seem to get this, which is why his movies are some of the most critically acclaimed and award-winning movies. And this is actually, I think, a good place, as good a place as any, to insert here my first point about where I think this movie intersects with the gospel. And I've stated this in kind of a, it's a little bit of a negative way. You'll understand it as we, go, as we talk about it. But let me, let me just state it very clearly for you here. That we tend, we tend to underestimate the complexity of the human soul. We tend, I think especially in Christian circles, we tend to underestimate the complexity of the human soul. And when we do that, I want you to hear this. When we do that, we put ourselves in great spiritual danger. Now, let me explain what I'm trying to say here. Woody, Woody in this movie, Woody Grant is not a particularly likable old man. Um, he's crotchety. He's uncommunicative. And what he does communicate is very angry and dismissive. Throughout his life, he seems to have cared very little for his two grown sons, and he's an alcoholic, and he has been an alcoholic for a long, long time. Were it not for the stop in Woody's hometown in this journey, as we watch this movie, were it not for the stop in his hometown, I think it's fair to say that we as an audience would feel no empathy for Woody at all. But in his hometown, our perception of Woody softens a little. It turns out that there's actually more to Woody than meets the eye. We learn that Woody is generous, sometimes generous to a fault. We learn that Woody was shot down in Korea, but he never told his family about it. In one particular scene, Woody and his wife and his two adult sons visit 
uh, Woody's old abandoned home in which he grew up. And we watch as Woody surveys the void of his past with eyes that have seen way too much pain. And in this encounter, we kind of begin to understand how alcohol became Woody's coping strategy for life. We also learn in in his hometown why Woody is so doggedly determined to claim this prize money that he thinks that he won. One of the reasons is that Woody had never had much in his life, just never had much money, never had many possessions. And Woody, it's like he just doesn't want to die without owning a new truck. He can't even drive, but he wants a new truck. And then the other reason that he's so determined about this trip and about claiming this money is that he just wants, he said he just wanted to leave something to his sons when he died. And all of a sudden, this guy who we really didn't like for the first half of the movie becomes someone that, even if we wouldn't want to hang around him a lot, we can still see that there is something good in this man after all. It turns out that Woody is a pretty complex guy. And it got me to thinking about how this also works the other way around. Woody's Woody's a guy that, you know, he's largely bad, but he turns out to have a good side after all. Uh, But it works the other way, too. And and I hope that, and what I'm going to say here in the next few moments, I hope to relieve some pressure and some guilt that some of you may be living with in saying what I'm going to say. It's not just bad people who turn out to have something good in them. It's also true that genuinely good people of faith in Christ also have a dark side. Genuinely good people of faith in Christ also have a dark side. That's true of me. And that's true of everyone here. My dark sides, what I mean are personal struggles with temptations, private sins, Perhaps doubts about what they believe. Would it surprise you to know that there are times that I have preached sermons that I struggled to believe as I wrote the sermon? Would that surprise you? And what happens, I think, with, with most of us, we're, we're so ashamed that we have these struggles with temptations and sins and doubts that we're too ashamed to let other people know that those things are there in our lives. Why are we so ashamed, do you think? Why are we so ashamed? I'll tell you. I think the big reason is that many of us have been exposed to some very fundamentalist sects of Christianity that teach an overly simplistic and naive gospel. And what they teach... They teach the gospel in a way that leads people to believe 
that um, somehow responding to the gospel will obliterate all of your sin struggles and all of your doubts. And if those sin struggles and doubts persist, it's because either you haven't responded really to the gospel or it's simply because you're not reading the Bible or praying enough. Can you see how, if you've been exposed to that or if a person has been exposed to that, can you see how they would be ashamed to talk about their ongoing sin struggles or their ongoing doubts? Can you see that? Can you see how that would happen? But here's something that I have noticed in working with people in church for over two decades. If a guy struggles with pornography before he responds to the gospel, he will struggle with pornography after he responds to the gospel. And if a woman struggles with food or self-image issues before she responds to the gospel, she will struggle with food or self-image issues after she responds to the gospel. Now, there may be a a short reprieve during those, you know, when you first respond to the gospel, man, you are so excited and you're so fired up for Christ. And, you know, it's just, you're so passionate about it all. In those those days, in those months, maybe even in those years, there may be a, a, a reprieve, a temporary reprieve from some of those struggles. But life is long. And the patterns of thinking and the patterns of behaving that characterized life before Christ are so deeply ingrained, they will return. And I want to tell you something. The gospel never promises to remove those patterns of thinking and behaving immediately. It never does. It takes a lot of work and effort and repentance and, frankly, failure and cooperation with the Holy Spirit to grow spiritually. One of the things that characterizes these fundamentalist sects, churches, is that they reject any discussion of psychology in the context of spiritual development. You mention psychology in the same sentence with the gospel in these kinds of churches, and you will be branded a heretic. And the reason is, is that in these fundamentalist kinds of churches, uh, they are very naive and overly simplistic in their view of the redeemed soul, which is very contrary by the way, to what the Bible actually teaches. I want you to listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul, and I want you to listen to him as he writes. I want you to listen to him describe his own inner conflicts. And I want you to see if this sounds simple or if it sounds like he has a simplistic view of the redeemed human soul. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I'm saying, when I read that passage, I'm saying, dude, put the pen down. You are having an obsessive moment here. You're going into a downward spiral. You need a psychologist. I'm kidding because there are actually some very profound psychological and spiritual insights in what he says. But to a fundamentalist, any talk of complexity and any talk of psychology is hogwash and heresy. If you have lingering sin, 
You're either not a Christian or you're just not reading the Bible enough and you're not praying enough. Those are important things, reading the Bible and praying. Those are very important things. But that's not the only reason that you struggle with ongoing patterns of sin. And it's not the only reason that you struggle with doubt. That's an oversimplification of the psychological and spiritual processes at work within the human soul. And here's the thing I want you to get. This is where I'm wanting to really get to with this point. Is that when we underestimate the complexity of the redeemed soul, we set ourselves up for great spiritual danger. Let me tell you three dangers that you um, set yourself up for if you buy into this oversimplification of the redeemed human soul. Here's one. You set yourself up for needless guilt and shame. Because here's what it looks like. If I'm a real Christian, I shouldn't be struggling with this sin. And you know what happens? Shame over struggling with that drives it deeper into your life and it drives you deeper into isolation, which makes that sin more powerful and more destructive in your life. It does that every time. Here's a second way that it sets you up for spiritual danger. It sets you up for anxiety. Because you think like this, you know, I struggle, man, because I struggle with this, maybe I'm not a Christian after all. And I can't tell you how many people I've known over the years that that thought just torments to the point that they can't experience any peace. And then here's the third way that it sets you up for spiritual danger. And perhaps this is the most dangerous of all. It becomes very easy to fool yourself into believing that the sin struggles that were part of your past are gone. And what happens then is that you fail to seriously deal, to seriously deal with and examine all of the things in your life that have caused you to wrestle with that particular sin struggle. And you fail to repent over it, and you fail to make new habits. You fail to be on alert for this particular sin struggle. And that can blow up in your life. And in fact, I want to tell you something. This, is, this, in fact, is the reason that many pastors end up failing morally in ministry. Because they came to receive Jesus Christ. They responded to the gospel and they were so excited. And they thought that all of their problems of the past were gone. And they don't deal with any of that stuff. And then they get into ministry and the temptations come. And they were not prepared for it. And they failed. And I want to tell you something else. This is why there are many pastors that end up building churches that in the long run are more spiritually destructive than they are redemptive. Because they don't deal with their issues. They've convinced themselves that all of their issues are in the past and that somehow responding to the gospel has changed everything about them. And they build churches that become more spiritually destructive than they are redemptive. And it's because they teach and they believe in a naive and simplistic view of the redeemed human soul. I'm going to tell you something. That this is, I'm just, let me just take a moment and, and, and say this. That City Church has to be a church 
that acknowledges the complexity of the human soul if we're going to bring renewal spiritually, socially, and culturally uh, to the city of Evansville. If we don't recognize the complexity of the human soul, we will have an impact on this community that is only fragile and it is only very superficial. Uh, We must recognize that good people of faith in Christ still have a dark side. And so we have to build a church in which it's okay to be human. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to confess sins. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to express doubt. Um, We have to build a church in which we're willing to tackle the hard issues that real people really deal with in the city of Evansville. And we have to bring these issues out of the darkness and into the light to help people heal. And I want to tell you to that end, I have a big idea that I'm going to tell you about in just a few weeks that is going to, I think the scope of which is going to blow some of you away. And I think the impact that it can have on this community and beyond this community, the whole region, the whole tri-state area, I think the impact that this could have on people, on Men, on women, on kids, on marriages, on families. I think the impact that this could have is uh, enormous. I mean, I'm not even sure that you can calculate the impact that it can have. And I'm going to tell you about that in a few weeks. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that I need some of you. I need, I need all of you. Just seriously. I need you to learn a new form of evangelism that some of you have never participated in before. And that form of evangelism is social media. And I'm not kidding you. I need you to be, I need you to learn social media for the cause of Christ. And I'm not joking. I I mean that. I need you to learn Facebook and Twitter for the cause of Christ. And so when we hold these workshops, I'm going to ask you to make sure that you're there. Because in a a few weeks, I'm going to start telling you about this thing that I think is going to have this enormous impact. And it's going to require all of us here to get involved. And one of the ways that you can get involved is through social media. Because we're going to want news of this to go everywhere. And I'll tell you about that in a few weeks. Is your curiosity peaked? Okay. That's where I want you to be. Right there. Okay. We tend to underestimate the complexity of the human soul. And we can't do that if we're going to be the church that the city of Evansville needs. We've got to recognize that good people of faith have a dark side. And we've got to help them deal with that. Okay, let me get on to my second point from this movie. Second place that I think that this movie intersects the gospel. And it's simply this. Everyone, everyone, this movie teaches, everyone wants to matter. Everyone wants to matter. There's a scene in the middle of the movie, you saw it just a moment ago in the clip, that I think tells us something very important about Woody, that Woody would have never been able to tell us about himself. He might not even understand about himself. He seems to be a guy that doesn't have a great deal of self-awareness, Certainly not enough self-awareness to be able to explain this to anybody. But you saw it. He's sitting at a bar in his hometown with his son, David. Woody orders a beer, and David orders a Mountain Dew. But Woody wants David to have a beer with him. And did you hear what he said to him? He said, David, come on. 
have a beer with your old man. And then he says this. He says, be somebody. Now, in what sense does having a beer with your old man make you somebody? Well, it wouldn't for most people. But as I watched this movie, I realized that this was really the key to understanding Woody. He was telling his son to be somebody because that's what Woody had always wanted to be. He'd always been a nobody. He wanted to be somebody. And that's a big part of what this journey for Woody was was about. He just... He just wanted to be somebody. He just wanted to matter. And Woody defined that in very low terms. (laughs) Really, for Woody, it it was just if he could just own a new truck. It's not really that big of a deal. But for Woody, it was a big deal if he could just own a new truck. He couldn't even drive. But if he could just own a new truck, that would be a sign that he was somebody. And near the end of the movie... Woody and David arrive uh, at the place where Woody's supposed to claim his million dollars. It's been a long journey, a lot of miles to get to this place in Lincoln, Nebraska. And this scene, uh, if you if saw the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a very ironic scene. This place where his pot of gold lies has held such significance in Woody's slowly decaying mind that he has, with such determination, fought to get to this place that will validate his life, that will, by awarding him his prize, make the statement to the world that Woody Grant matters. This place. I wondered, as I was watching this movie, what Woody would have dreamed that this place would have looked like. A tall skyscraper, perhaps, with gold elevators. Mahogany-paneled offices, a beautiful secretary waiting to escort him back to a pinstripe-suited executive who would walk him into the company's vault and hand him a check for a million dollars with newspaper bulbs flashing. Wondered if maybe that's how Woody would have envisioned it. But this place is nothing like that. It's a lone little office by the side of the road with a gravel parking lot stuffed full of cardboard boxes and silly old promotional items with a lone very plain-looking, middle-aged woman sitting behind a cluttered desk, surprised, in fact, that Woody and David have walked in. And David tells her that his dad is here to claim his million dollars. Woody pulls the certificate that he received in the mail out and hands it to the woman, and she puts her glasses on and types in a few numbers into her computer, And tells him matter-of-factly that nope, his number wasn't selected. Whether she could give him a hat or a t-shirt. Woody chooses a hat. 
And in the next scene, we see Woody hunched over in the car, seemingly asleep, halfway gone from the world already, thinking that the final verdict on his life is in. And as he might have suspected, the verdict is that he never mattered. And he sits there with that stupid hat perched on top of his head. And on the hat, it says two words. There's a star in the middle, but it says two words loaded with enormous irony. And the hat says, prize winner. And when I watch, when I watch a scene like that in a movie, I try to be aware of what I'm feeling in the moment. And the best way to describe what I felt when I watched that scene was just a bottomless sadness. I felt so sorry for Woody. How pathetic. And I wondered if perhaps Woody, if if he would have had enough self-awareness to be able to do it. I, I wonder if Woody would have maybe quoted something from the book of Ecclesiastes writer of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible in the Old Testament says in verse chapter 1 verse 2 he says meaningless meaningless utterly meaningless everything is meaningless and I wonder if maybe that's what Woody was feeling in that moment you and I could it occurred to me that, that you and I could easily laugh at Woody and we could say dude what were you thinking Seriously, come on, this was a hoax. Everybody knew that from the beginning. You're dreaming if you think you really want a million dollars. But in truth, don't we all have equally ridiculous dreams that we vainly hope in? That are nothing more than a sham. Nothing more than a cruel trick of life. Back in Dallas where I lived for 27 years. And by the way, I love Dallas, I really do. But I gotta tell you something. You would be amazed at the lengths that women in Dallas will go to to hold on to beauty. Because for many of them, being wanted, being noticed, being beautiful is the sign that they still matter. And a lot of them have had so much surgery to enhance things and tighten things that they no longer even look real anymore. I mean, frankly, you wonder if they need a tune-up every 3,000 miles just to be able to keep going. I was thinking about Lance Armstrong. Here's a guy that was willing to give up his integrity and his dignity and the respect of his kids and the respect of the nation and the respect of the cancer community that he had helped so much just to win a bike race. I mean, that's really what it was in the end, just a bike race. But boy, that bike race would signify to him and to the world, that Lance Armstrong matters. I've known men who've been willing to give up families to earn a title in their company because, oh my goodness, that title, having that next to my name, it will validate that I mattered. I've known pastors who are willing to give up their integrity to grow a church. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll change the message if that's what it takes just to grow a church. I'll water it down I'll stop teaching the gospel. 
I'll do anything just to make sure that I grow the church. Because then if, that, if I do that, then it will validate that I matter. We all, we all want to matter. And we look to these, what should I call them? Uh, let's call them what the Bible calls them. We look to these idols. They're psychological idols, but they're idols nonetheless because we sacrifice for them, we worship them, we fantasize about them, we give our time and money and talent to them, we give our lives to them, they drive our lives just as much as Woody's prize, his imaginary prize, drove him. And we look to them to issue the verdict on our lives that indeed, you are not a bum. You're not a loser because you want a bike race. Because you have a title next to your name. You're not a loser. And I want to tell you something. I have done a lot of funerals over the years for people who gave their entire lives for those kinds of idols. And at the funeral, people bury them with symbols of those idols. Like they put them in the casket with them. Like I've seen people buried with a key to their, the keys to their favorite truck. I've seen people buried with a hat that had the name of their favorite college sports team on their head, and they were buried with that in the casket. I've seen people buried with golf clubs. I've seen a, somebody buried with a bottle of his favorite expensive whiskey. And this is what their life amounted to. And when I do these funerals, I'm going to tell you, when I see that, it feels as bottomlessly sad and pathetic as Woody looked with his prize winner hat perched on top of his head. It just feels meaningless. If the movie ended there, we would walk out of the movie feeling horrible and dark and hopeless. But there is a plot twist that we could have never predicted. David returns to the car. His father is wearing that stupid prize winner hat on his head. And he tells his dad that they're going to go back now to Billings. But they may have to make a couple stops on the way. And in the next scene, we see David at a car dealership, taking his stuff out of his old car and putting it inside a new truck that he just bought. And he tells Woody that he put his, Woody's name, on the title. And suddenly Woody Grant is the proud owner of a new truck that he can't drive. David drives them in Woody's truck back to Woody's hometown and they get to the main street that goes through the town. And at the end of that main street, David stops the truck and he says to his dad, why don't you drive it down Main Street? And his dad says, but I'm not allowed to drive. David says, it, it'll be okay. And Woody gets out of the passenger seat and he gets in the driver's seat of his new car, his new truck and you see Woody just all kind of blown up with pride getting ready to drive through town with his new truck and as he drives through town all of the people 
in the town take notice of him. The ones that laughed at him and the ones that were happy for him, they all noticed Woody Grant driving his new truck through town. And Woody just takes it all in. He's so proud. It's always fascinating to me how movies, even if they don't want to, reenact the drama of the gospel. If you don't remember one thing I've said in this series, remember this. In every movie you watch, look for the gospel because it's there somewhere. As I said, if the movie would have ended with Woody in that stupid hat with his head on the window, we would have left hopeless and sad. But in this plot twist at the very end, we learn that Woody really was a prize winner. Only the prize wasn't the money. The prize was the son. He had a son that loved him with a love that, frankly, Woody didn't deserve. It was grace. And at great expense to himself, this son gave Woody the dignity that he had always wanted but never found. Woody was a winner because of his son. And likewise, you know, if the Bible had ended with the words of Solomon back in Ecclesiastes 1, that everything is meaningless, we would have been hopeless as a human race. But in a plot twist that no one could ever have imagined, another son loved the human race with a love that we never deserved and at great expense to himself rendered a final verdict on your life and mine through his death on the cross. And the verdict is, you matter. You matter, you see, not because of your wealth, not because of your truck, not because of your car, not because of your beauty, not because of your title, not because of the race you've won, not because of your awards or anything else that you have sought to validate you in your life. You matter. You can put that issue to bed. The verdict is in. You matter because of what God's son did on the cross for you. Once for all, the verdict is in. You matter to the only one who really matters. Would you bow with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we will spend all of eternity thanking you for what you did for us on the cross. We do not completely understand it. We have, we, don't, we have barely begun to scratch the surface of all that the cross means. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us here this morning that you would give us a sense of our significance that we matter as human beings, not because of something out there in the future that we, we think we have to have to validate us, but that uh, our, our significance as human beings, our value was decided a few thousand years ago before we were ever born on a cross outside of Jerusalem when you, the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, died on a cross. And in so doing, you declared that we matter. There are people in this room that have never understood that. Lord, I pray that today might be a day that that would seep in to the depths of their souls in a small way. There are people that are all throughout this city that have never learned this. They've never known this. They don't understand this, that they matter, that that you have declared that they matter through the cross.
Lord, would you use City Church as, as a, a church? Would you use all the churches in, in this area to communicate through the gospel that they matter? And we ask that you would do that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's in his name that we worship and pray.